Amen. The kids are invited to Kids Church with Emily this morning. And thank you for that, Jonathan. For those who don't know, that, that hymn is by Charles Wesley. Um, I think it captures some of the struggle in that what we live with in this time of, of sort of... Um, bufferedness to the ways to where we relate to the world, um, to ask the question, am, am I born to die in a world where death is so hidden and pushed to the margins, and to think about eternal things often seems um, well, either gothic to us today, as, as somebody might complain that song is, or um, uh, foreign. Um, and so it was good to have that word today. The, the sort of, uh, if you've been following along with the sermon, the context for which um, we live in relationship to the Son in, the, in this series is by another's death. Um, and it's by another's death that we sort of raise up into that place. So shall I first love my God because he first loved me um, and praise thee in thy bright abode to all eternity. But this morning brings us to the uh, third sermon in this sort of series of sort of walking through how we understand ourselves in relation to God, how we understand ourselves. The, the phrase for this is, is sort of anthropology, is, is what is a human being? Now, part of the argument that I've been trying to make in this sermon series using the, um, the, the, as a guide, this book from these two, one book from, from David Kelsey. So uh, the second the second volume showed up this week, so um, if you're looking at the first and you're like, that's not so bad, well, the other part's here today. Um, but part of it is, is taking this and in, in, in how it spoke to me and then distilling it to say, how can we understand ourselves in the world? Um, and so as I've said before, Kelsey is not writing like, I invented this yesterday, but diving into the depths of the Christian tradition with long, uh, I believe he calls them excursus through scripture. Um, he did a beautiful sort of dive into the individual portraits of Jesus as he's understood through the four gospels this week. And then he brings out these truths. And when I read this book in 09 or 10, it sat with me ever since. And, and these sermons have been um, sort of this way of sort of using language and grammar, which is the way we understand the world, to then understand ourselves. Um, and they're, in that way, I think I've tried to say theology more proper. They're not biblical studies. They're not biblical theology. They're just this way of sort of understanding who God is and how God relates to us. It's this sort of, you know, you need each of those things, I think, to have a robust sort of understanding of God. You need to dive into the Bible. You need to dive into these biblical words that multiply out. And then you also need to, to raise up and condense in theological language in some ways. Um, and so that's sort of what we've been doing. But the argument that, that he's making is that existence as we understand it is eccentric to us. It is outside of ourselves that we understand ourselves. And the reason why I like this is because so much of the modern world is that temptation to say what's inside of you is the truest thing about you. How you feel today is how you should determine your whole life. And if you feel different tomorrow, then I guess you should determine your whole life based off of that feeling. What Kelsey, I think, wisely does, and he is, I wonder how much he'd enjoy of what I say about what he said. So uh, this is why I don't quote him or overuse him that much, because I think he'd be like, mm-mm. 
Because he's not critiquing the modern age as much as saying this is the proper way to understand ourselves. But I think also it's a deep critique of the modern age to say that who we are is outside of ourselves. Next week, my hope, um, next week, first off, is Bennett's uh, dedication, which is exciting, great news. Um, uh, so we'll be doing that next Sunday. But the last sermon um, in this series, potentially, there's maybe, I'm not sure what to do after that. But I know Job is coming after Trinity Sunday, so I do know that. Um, but is this idea of which so often the Christian church wants to ground who we are and our self-worth and dignity is in the imago Dei or in the image of God that God has imprinted upon us. What's interesting about the argument that I've been making in the series or the argument that the book makes is that the imago Dei is, we often read as inside ourselves. It's impressed upon us. The challenge with that is after Genesis 1, where it says that we're created in the image of God, where that theme shows up again most in the New Testament, we'll talk about this next week, is in Jesus Christ is the one who images the image of God. So it's not quite what's inside of us naturally default, but it is as we image the image of God who is Christ. Now that's not to say, well then, what's human self-worth? Well, we've covered that already. That God creates us. God has made us. That's enough to say why individuals have dignity and self-worth. That God is going to consummate us, that was the second one, in the fullness of time, is another argument to say that we have dignity in the fact that God is going to bring us to um, final glory, to consummation, to that praise that the song spoke of. Today, with the Son, it's to say that we live by another's death, that our worth comes in that somebody else, namely the Son of God, died for us. Drowning all of it in the Imago Dei sort of gets, um, for lack of a better word, sloppy because it becomes one of these things that's hard to define. What does it mean? What's our relationality? It's this, it's that. And then you can then dream up scenarios of people who don't have relationality or don't have language or don't have these things. And then you have to decide, well, do they have the Imago Dei or not? Grounding it in this way, in God's relation to us, frees us from those struggles and challenges. So that's what's coming next week. Um, but this week I just wanted to do, do the sun one and then do sort of a quick summary. The, the main theme is that, that we've been arguing is that God relates to us through three different stories. We'll start with the second one. Stories about how God is the source of reality other than God. Um, stories about God as the source of all reality other than God. God as the father of all of us. Stories about God as reconciler of alienated humankind in Jesus Christ. And stories about God bringing us to consummation in eschatological life and the Holy Spirit. That these are sort of the three stories that Scripture tells about us. And they're intertwined, as, as my favorite image shows, that they're not one thing, but they're, th one, they're three stories that sort of make a triple helix and cross-relate with one another. And so we have these three stories in which how God relates to us. But one of the things that I think is true is that if we look at this first sermon we did, is that this answers the question, what is humankind? What is humankind? What are we as humans? We are those whom God relates to in creation. We're ones who have been created. So if you look through these, the, the grammar things that we went over, it's the Father relates to us and, and create and creates us. Um, we respond in ordinary contexts that are filled with God's glory. This means that we exist by borrowed breath. In the Genesis 2 story is that we exist by breath that is borrowed. 
We respond in faith, and the practices of faith are delight, wonder, and perseverance. This second one is how are we to be? How are we to be in time? So what was the first one, a question of what are we? The second is how are we? We are those who will be someday consummated in glory. We are those who will find the fulfillment in what God has done for us. So last week we talked about the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit relates circumambient or circumambiently to us. That means all around us and through us and in us and all its glory. Um, that we are awaiting that final consummation, that if you look at the book of Revelation, perhaps, or, or even in the book of Isaiah, that this day in which those things which plague us, death, destruction, addiction, will be no more, that we wait that day of full consummation when all the things that we see enacted in Jesus' ministry, the healing, the forgiveness, the miracles of feeding, will be true for all of humanity is what we await in that. One of the things I missed last week is the Holy Spirit is often what we talk of about in the miraculous, that the Spirit is active in the miracles that happen. And I think that's a great example of what does it mean that, that the already is coming through what Jesus has given us in the Spirit, is that we see these cracks in which healing comes. They're signs of that future full day. So often we take miracles as the, as the only thing, but the people who Jesus healed eventually get sick and die, or eventually they, they find themselves, you know, incapacitated through other means, age, um, other things. And so what happens is that they become first fruits through the Spirit of that day we're awaiting, but they don't become the thing itself. They become sort of cracks in time. In that chapter, in that sermon, we talked about election and mission sort of as the ways in which we go. And what we exist on then is borrowed time. Um, we talked about convicts or people who describe, uh, survive near-death experiences are those whom we say live on borrowed time because we know that there is a fullness coming. So in that, we respond in hope or in joyous hopefulness. And there are practices in the now of borrowed time. What are the things we can do now that God has enabled us to do as a witness to that fullness of time, knowing that they'll lack completeness on this side of the fullness of time, but we can bring them now. We talked about Christians and their desire to end lack of clean water throughout the world or to work against human sex trafficking with the International Justice Mission or those things. Is to, is to sort of these practices we can do in the now. And then we talked about knowing the not yet as well. And there's a danger if you collapse everything into the now, then everything becomes necessary to be corrected today. Um, I was looking through some notes from seminary uh, about hope is the stance that not everything needs to be said right now. We have more time than an hour. And the context of that lecture, as I was looking back, is, is, is therapy, is relating to people um, in marriage, children, parent, uh, coworker, the desire to say everything in the next 15 minutes because it can all be resolved. I've never done that in a fight. I've always worked specifically on, no. <laughs> None of us work specifically on something that we can resolve in that day, but oftentimes we're tempted to blow up everything at once. And what hope is that stance to say that we have more time than we think. Not everything needs to be reconciled or brought to consummation in the next five minutes when you reach that crisis point as much as we love to force it to do so. 
Um, All not yet means that we don't see what God invites us to in the resurrection, the gift of his spirit. If you go to all not yet, you fall into this, I think, kind of despair that says, uh, I mean, occasionally Christians will say this is like, why should I do anything? It's all going to burn anyways, which is both a bad way to read the whole biblical corpus, but even true ignores all the commands to do something in the present. Like you're you're cutting off two things there. One saying, I'm not a great reader of of how it's all going to end. And second, I'm ignoring the things that I am commanded to do anyways. But but we're tempted to do that, and I think we're tempted to do that sometimes because it can seem like too much. Um, we're just going to let it go. Uh, but that brings us to today's sort of grammar. Um, and it, when I say grammar, know that I hate grammar as much as anybody else. So um, uh, don't think I, I'm, I'm happy about using the language grammar for this. We talked last week about that becoming Christian is learning to speak Christianese. Um, of, of learning to speak what it is that God does for us. And so this last one sort of focuses on Jesus Christ. And, and as I said, Jesus Christ is the operative actor, and he does it through uh, to the will of the Father through the power of the Spirit. So none of these are completely individualized. There's one actor that we say is predominantly acting in it, but, but Jesus is the one who calls out Father. And he says at oftentimes in his ministry, the one that empowers him to do so is the Spirit that ascends on him. So it's not as if we're saying we have three different godheads and they're not unified in this mission at all, but they're, they're intertwined, I think, that image of the triple helix, I think, captures that well. And so walk through each of these words to try and figure out um, this. So the first one was what, the second one is how are to, we to be, and this one, I think, describes who are we to be. What are we? How are we? Who are we and there's a bit of what I intended to do and I think fell off in this, this series a little bit was this understanding of past, present, and future. That in, in the first one that the God, God relates to us through creation is a lot of this um, past sense in which God has been good to us. That faith often comes, or faith, faith in my experience mostly comes, as I've sat with people throughout my whole life, of people who have seen goodness. It's not permanent goodness, but they have seen something of the good, something of reconciliation, something of transcendence, something of beauty that's given them faith. It's called them into a place of being. And so when we think about faith, it's often past-oriented. When you meet a modern struggle, some limit of your mind, body, or soul, or one of your loved ones, it's to call to mind those good things. Faith orients us to our past in which we've seen good action. And if you've ever been in a dark spot, that's one of the things that is, I think, chief, and we see it throughout this command throughout the Old Testament, to remember, to remember, to remember, to remember that I am your God who rescued you from Egypt, is to say to remember who you are as one who's been rescued. When you reach the darkest moments of your life, one of the biggest challenges is to remember and to have faith that there was something good before that day. Oftentimes, it causes you to question all of the good that happened before that day. Faith is that resilience in the moment to say that I will still have this because of what I've seen and known. I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And despite of the ugly head of death or disease or destruction or disfigurement that comes today, I will still have faith in what I've seen before then. 
then hope becomes this future thing. Hope is this thing in which we know we have more time. Uh, last week, um, hope gives faith movement. Um, hope pushes us into this place of knowing that there is, because of what we've seen in faith, this coming glory, this coming good thing, that all that we see that's opposed to the goodness we've seen someday won't be. It would be hard to have faith without hope um, because it draws you into the place of, of you might as well enjoy the goodness while you have it, but there's nothing coming in your future. Um, this, I think, is one of the challenges of the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, the teacher, not the whole book, often sees life only from the perspective of under the sun. And that can draw him into some darkness. He says that there are good things under the sun, but we have no idea how it's going to work out in the future, and that's frustrating for us. The frame narrator, if you remember the last summer, says what he says is good to listen to, but it's not the full story. Hope says it's not the full story. Love becomes then how we are to enact in the present, how to be in that time, to know we've been created, to know that we're awaiting that future consummation, to have hope in that, is then to say, what shall I do now? And it's love. And incidentally, as we get to it, love of God and love of neighbor, um, which at times... Um, well, we'll get to it when we get down there. I, do, I, th I think that part of the challenge of the modern world is this one, being reconciled, um, is either collapsed maybe into the struggles of the last one, is that reconciliation means nothing else matters, or reconciliation means everything else matters, and it becomes an ethical performance upon which we need to perform and to sort of prove that we're Christian. This is... I'm skipping away. This is part of the challenge of, of a world come of age in Christianity, which is part of our world, is that they always tell, oftentimes people have no interest in the God who rescued the people from Egypt or the God who raised Jesus from the dead will often say to you, you're a Christian, you're supposed to do X. This is incredibly weird <laughs> phenomena. And it's almost always only ethical. Seldom, although it's happened, I think, once or twice, somebody in the world will rouse you to pray for them when you're listening to their story because they know you're a Christian. They'll say, you'll be like, man, that is terrible. I do not want to know, do for you. And they'll say at the end of the conversation, well, will you pray for me? They're like, well, that's what I should have known to do. <laughs> it happens to me. I don't know if it happens to you guys, but, but you know, you're sitting with somebody and all the overwhelmingness, you get overwhelmed too, and they remember even though they may not believe that you're the one thing you can do to help them is pray. Um, and so, I, but I do think that it falls solely into that ethical sort of performance. And within a certain kind of, of Christianity, I do think that it falls into a different ethical performance, which is the only thing you can do is share this news. The other two things that we are created, that we are waiting consummation don't matter. Your life becomes full of anxiety of are you doing enough to share this gospel constantly and all the time. Um, that seems to me to forget other aspects of this movement too. Um, so that's a bit about um, that one. So we'll walk through it now. Um, this is hard because as I said in the past sermons that for me at least, coming to this moment of, of seeing God acting in these three ways in relation to us, which is an old thing, um, this one is so dominant. Um, and so this one, when it's like, okay, who is Jesus Christ? <laughs> we know that one, so it's a bit hard to, 
to do this. But one of the things that that is um, I was reading through this book and other books is is it so often forgot that Jesus Christ is somebody with an address in some ways. I mean, he didn't own a house in that way. I'm not sure addresses existed in the ancient Near East anyways, but point being is that like he was somebody who took concrete relationship within history. Jesus Christ is not some God floating out there that is, is non-relational in some ways, but is one who took flesh in a particular time and place. That classic story, um, Luke 2, which we uh, know from both our Bibles and the Peanuts Christmas movie, begins within the days of Caesar Augustus, that so much of the Gospels is bound up in this being a real person who lived in real time. That is often in ancient religions unique. There are metafigures, um, and you can think about the, the Greek gods in sort of this way too, but when the time Jesus exists, there are metafigures that sort of exist and there are parables and stories told about them, but they exist on like a timeless plane. Jesus Christ, through the Gospels, the four portraits that preserve who he is for us, exist in a very timed place. There is Pontius Pilate. There is people, um, oftentimes there'll be moments in the Gospels um, where names will be dropped so specifically that people who read them professionally think it's a reference to because you know that guy. Um, so Joseph of Arimathea is a weird thing to have in a story, except for that maybe he's somebody you might actually know. Um, Simon of Cyrene, that these, these hints are dropped that it's so engaged within history. So when we talk about Jesus, we talk about one whom it comes in real life to deliver us with the power to reconcile and to forgive. Um, born a Jew, biologically a male, in a particular place, and what we come around to is we have these four distinct portraits of who this one is for us, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they disclose the identity of him as one who is alive now to us. So it doesn't just exist in time, in the past, but one, uh, the end of Mark, um, he's going ahead of you to Galilee to go meet them there. The, short, or the ending that we have, there's two sh shorter ending, a longer ending, depending on your Bible, but almost suggests, like, go back and read it again because he is going to meet you in rereading this gospel. He's the one who is alive now to us, not just one who existed in time. Jesus relates among us. Um, this is, again, taking it out of that sort of meta place and putting it as one who relates interpersonally to the people around him. Jesus doesn't come and sort of um, float above the crowds, delivering a message from on high, but touches, heals, relates, teaches, preaches, um, eats, uh, sleeps, um, goes away because he's worn out by people. Um, all the introverts rejoice. Too bad, I'll take that away from you. Um, uh, he is this one who lives in time and place among people. Um, and in most of the Gospels, um, in the Gospels, the first half of this story is this way in which he is very among. Uh, Dostoevsky's the book, The, the Idiot, um, is sort of this parable of Christ. Um, it's not a great one, but one of the ones, things that the idiot says at the beginning, he suffers from um, schizophrenia. He says that he's going to go be among the people. Um, and that's sort of one of Dostoevsky's way of capturing who Christ is, is that he is this one who is among the people. 
Christ relates among to us and with us. And in this, in this um, Jesus Christ being among us is to reconcile us in, in our estranged contexts, in our ways in which we turn away from God, in the ways in which we pursue deformity of creation, the ways in which we pursue deformity of each other, deformity of what it means to have one who wants to relate to us as design, to live in, in some ways within a sinful world, God comes to reconcile us to God. That, I think, is one of the most beautiful ways of, of summing up the gospel. Um, now, we can, the Protestant world has, has really latched onto the cross, and we'll talk about by another's death as the instrument of our reconciliation, because he takes our place there. But even in the incarnation, he restores humanity to what it's supposed to be. He comes as the one who is the original artwork that God had set in the garden to restore it to what it was supposed to be. He, he comes as this reconciler to us. And as a reconciler, he comes with that power to heal. He comes with that power to forgive. He comes with that power to restore right relation again. See this in the story of the woman at the well. Go and sin no more as she receives the forgiveness that comes from him. That he is one constantly restoring people to where they should be from physical reality, um, uh, wrist, um, the man with the withered hand, to death, Lazarus, um, to all these other things, to even on the cross with the crowds. Forgive them for they know not what they are doing. Or to the thief next to him who asks that he will remember, today I tell you, you will be with me in paradise. He's one in his enactments among us is constantly reconciling us to what we were meant to be and to how we were supposed to be. The two sort of side words for today are incarnation and in Christ. Incarnation, um, we'll start with, is this way in which saying that this is the one whom the story of God's dealing with humanity, starting with Abraham, culminates in. This is the story of the one whom God, starting with Abraham, his story culminates in. And this is how I think it's helpful to remember that, because so often I think we're tempted to divorce who Jesus is from the context which he comes from as a Jew in this history and stuff like that. But incarnation names the context of it is this one particular God who called Abraham, who delivered the people in the Exodus, who's given them the story of repentance and reconciliation and their dissolution back and forth, which was recorded in the history books of the Old Testament. And the wisdom book's a different thing, but is this one who comes as incarnation of that. So often in the Gospels, um, Jesus is living the story of Israel, but living it faithfully. He goes to the wilderness and is tempted for 40 days, but does not sin. So Jesus also comes as faithful Israel incarnate. He comes as the one who can live their story, but live it without stumbling, which I always say this, faithful, Israel's, faithful and unfaithful Israel is our story, faithful and unfaithful church. Um, we despite what I think sometimes the New Testament hopes, although it does allow for these errors, think we have completed it. Um, but 2,000 years of church history suggests we exist in that same pattern as well sometimes. A uh, little bit different, but that. The second is, this one really hits on the who are we, is we are those who are in Christ. 
This is one of Paul's favorite phrases for talking about the Christian, is that they are now those who are located in Jesus Christ, that their story is now located within his story, that they are now in this context and in this place. We are ones who have been engrafted into that. So too, as Jesus has an address in this one, we too have an address as those baptized into Christ. We are ones located now within his realm. We've been brought into this, and, and this defines us theologically, not interpersonally per se. It, well, it defines us more Christologically. We are those who are in Christ. Who are we? We are those who live and breathe in Jesus Christ. Um, and we attempt to perform his story in our context faithfully well, too. That this comes by another's death. Um, full reconciliation comes in Christ's suffering in our place. I've, I've used this definition of the gospel often, but God does for us, but we cannot do for ourselves. Because of that, um, Christ dies in our place and enables our flourishing in our lives to be in love. And it's within this context that it is an act of love. I mean, the phrase for this, as many of us are aware, is, is that agape love. Um, and agape love has this way of being and defined as loving that which is unworthy or um, not, without having a reason to do it other than the reason itself. God dies for us in our place to reconcile us by his death, not because of something we've done or how genius we are or that, because it's God's desire to bring us back into communion and flourishing with God. It's not our movement. And so when we talk about the agape love of this, um, it's God drawing us to us or to this true life by the death of another. He exchanges places with us in the cross and sort of takes on that suffering, becomes that sin offering. There's so many different ways of talking about this. Um, but Christ becomes this one by his death, we are reconciled. And by his death, then, we are freed into the two practices that we have. The, the second one is, oh, sorry, it creates this context of love, this context of, a, of agape, that our lives now are governed by love in a different way. And it's a love that's not exactly altruism. It's a kind of a weird love because it's a commitment to others and to God in a way that is for our flourishing. Altruistic love, often what we think of, and Christians will fall for this too, is, is just to give away sort of aimlessly because the person needs it or this, that, and the other. Christian love should not be manipulative on the other side, but should be one that wants the other person's flourishing as well. Our dedication and love to one another and love to God and love to our neighbor and love to our children and parents and spouse and this is one for hoped flourishing for each of us. Hoped flourishing for our own flourishing in that context of love. And so it draws us into practices of love of God and love of neighbor. Um, so what Don, Don read for us actually about this way in which we lose our lives to find our lives again. That seems to be one of the movements that Jesus teaches often is that you need to stop trying to save yourself in this world. You need to lose yourself. But you find something when you do it. It's not just self-negation. It's that you'll find life on the other side of it. Um, but what 
no, that's what Shelley read for us. What Don read for us is these two great commandments, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might, and love your neighbor as yourself, which I always like to remind us is that these are not Christian inventions. These are things that come from the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Leviticus. Um, notably, the one with the book of Leviticus, you'll meet Christians who will say, I don't think we need the Old Testament. We're supposed to love God and love our neighbor. Two teachings that come from the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Leviticus. Um, uh, so, and they're embedded ones. They're not loving God, amorphous God. It's loving God whom has rescued. The sermon at the plain in Deuteronomy is on the plain of the promised land. Within these texts are stories with them. To love your neighbor as you love yourself comes in that ethical part of Leviticus, which we don't like as well. Um, and so these teachings are not just um, abstracted out of particularity, but in particularity, which is part of what I want to reclaim in talking about them real fast. Practices of passionate love with God and neighbor. Um, Kelsey has this wonderful way of defining passionate as long-lasting preoccupation. To have passionate love for God is to have a long-lasting preoccupation with that, which I like because it sounds so human. How do I love God? I have a long-lasting preoccupation with it. Not doing it perfectly. There are times where sometimes I forget it. But at times it comes back to me, often more than not, but hopefully that this is my long-lasting preoccupation to learn to love God and to learn to love my neighbor. And not just to learn to love a general God, but to learn to love that specific God. It's the God who's rescued us, who's reconciled us by another's death. One of the ways in which we love God is by worship, by prayer, by devotion. If we look at the first parts of the Lord's Prayer, to call on him as Father, to ask that the upholiness of that name be held, to pray for their kingdom, not our kingdom, to come on earth is this way. Uh, at the Bema discussion, we talked about the Ten Commandments last week as sort of the marriage vows as well. Now, they take the last half as marriage vows. The, the Christian tradition has sort of said the first tablet is um, related to God and the second tablet is related to neighbor, love of neighbor. Um, and so Calvin has this weird way of saying to not steal from your neighbor is also this preoccupation to say that you should give to your neighbor. Um, I've often read the Ten Commandments as like, didn't do that, great. Um, I can't be the only one who's like, made it, didn't do it, awesome. Um, but they actually have this sort of positive reverse affirmation is that not to steal from them is to also then um, give to them as if you were to bless them. Uh, to not just, to, to not steal from someone isn't really an act of love. Um, it's kind, um, but, but it's not that. So point being is the second half of the Ten Commandments, um, the second half of the, the Lord's Prayer deal with these we things. Um, but the first half deals with these practices in which we come and love God. In prayer, worship, in the phrase of Charles Wesley, funny enough, for the second time today, wonder, love, and praise is what he says we are called into. Um, and it's this way in which we seek union with that one. Forgetting this one, uh, if there was a sin for this one, is it becomes the ethical distortion I warned about. It becomes only that I can love my neighbor 
which sounds incredibly tiring if you think about it. I mean, it's just if you were to love your neighbor, or to look at the parable of the Sermon on uh, the Good Samaritan, um, he has time to stop. He has money to spare to put the guy up. He uses his donkey, his mode of transportation, to transport a bloody person. He um, then spends money for him to be there and doesn't even stay to share the gospel. Um, it is a very hard way of being if you think that's the only part of the Christian life. And so there's this way, um, a friend of mine, Shane, Shane um, Hips, used to say that we have two sort of ways of breathing. We breathe in and we breathe out. Um, I wouldn't reduce all of these into breathing in and breathing out. I think sometimes in practices of love of neighbor, you find yourself filled anyways. But if we were to just make it as simple as possible to say the practices of love of God are those with which we are inhaling. Um, we breathe in the goodness and the truth in those things so that we can properly, not just blow on people, but properly exhale it in the world as we are those sent forth in Christ to be those who enact mission and love. Um, that's sort of the thing there. Um, and so we have these ways as a church in which we can seek union and goodness with God. Um, and I think that we forget them often um, because we've fallen for the ethical conundrum of the faith. Um, so the first one is a challenge to retain that. Um, to seek places where in which you're seeking union, not so that you can just be instrumentalized in the world, but to rest in God, to know God, to be with God. Um, the second one, love of neighbor, is the one that gets instrumentalized enough, um, and one that distracts and pulls away enough, and one that gets weaponized enough. I was thinking about this today is how particular love of neighbor is. I say it often, but it really is, I think, a call to particular love of neighbor. To think about the parable of the Good Samaritan again is to help the suffering one you come upon the road of life. It's not to say that we need to make sure nobody ends up be up. Now, that might be wise and prudent. It might be something we discuss and aim for in public policy. I'm not saying that's not true, but love of neighbor is the getting down and being with in that suffering. And what I think happens in the modern world is so often we abstract love of neighbor. Um, I was telling Kelly, good things have come from um, understanding uh, systematic, uh, systemic understandings of injustice. Good things have come from trying to rid the world of those things as well. But I don't think they're love of neighbor. Love of neighbor is being with, is touch, is being among. And so often uh, during COVID, it was told, you know, love your neighbor by not talking to them. It was wise and perhaps prudent not to talk to your neighbor and spread the disease. That's completely fine. It is not love of neighbor, though. Love might have been buying them groceries while you were out so two people didn't go to the store. So what's happened is, is love of neighbor has become so abstracted in the modern world that love of neighbor is, is paying your taxes is almost what it seems like. Love of neighbor in the Christian life is particularized and near. And so um, I want to end with two quotes, one from Jonathan Franzen. Um, Troubled by real love, uh, and that's what it is. It has no choice but to trouble love in return. 
The modern world is troubled by real love, is what he says in this commencement speech, and it has no choice but to trouble love in turn. He goes on to talk about how you should love your smartphone or your Blackberry, and one of the ways in which it complicates love the most is it turns everything into likability. Um, the little heart or the like on Facebook or this, that, and the other, is it takes what's supposed to be profound in its way and turns it into likability. And so he continues in this commencement speech to say, the simple fact of the matter is trying to be perfectly likable is incompatible with loving relationships. Sooner or later, for example, you're going to find yourself in a hideous screaming fight and you'll hear things coming out of your mouth, things you don't like at all, things that shatter your self-image as fair, kind, cool, attractive, in control, funny, likable person. Something realer than likability has come out in you. And suddenly you're having an actual life. Suddenly there's a real choice to be made, not a fake consumer choice between a Blackberry and an iPhone, but a question, do I love this person? And for that other person, does this person love me? There's nothing, there is no such thing as a person whose real self you like every particle of. This is why a world of liking is ultimately a lie, but there's something such as a person whose real self you love every particle of. In a world of liking, of performing, of, of having the right causes attached to ourselves, we're tempted to not fall into love, but to fall into likability. And I can tell you there's nothing scarier than as a pastor, or I imagine as any other person, when you find yourself in the position of saying things that you don't think you meant to say out of rage or frustration or this, all you want to do is crawl in a hole and hide. Marriage, parenting, co-working relationships, um, friends. And you can spend your life trying to make sure that never happens, and then when it does, just move to a new town. Um, and it's hard. I mean, there's that temptation when it happens to say, I guess I blew that one. But real love, neighbor love, is moving beyond likability and actually performing in that way. He continues and finishes the quote with, and this is why love is such an existential threat to the techno-consumerist order. It exposes the lie. That is not to say love is not only about fighting. That's a correction there for some of us. Love is about the bottomless empathy born out of the heart's revelation that another person is every bit as real as you are. And this is why love, as I understand it, is always specific, directed towards your neighbor. Trying to love all humanity may be a worthy endeavor, but in a funny way, it keeps you focused on self and on the self's moral and spiritual well-being, whereas trying to love a specific person and to identify with his or her struggles as joys as if they were your own, you have to surrender some of yourself. We are called into the practice of loving God, um, and we are called into the practice of loving neighbors as we love ourselves. Um, and in that, we are called to something particular, um, and it is not easy. Um, so to end, the quote on the back of the bulletin from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. What has been said so far may sound sober, and it is supposed to. Only one way... Only in this way are we called to obedience, namely when it is understood as obedience to God in the church and in the state. The kingdom of God is not found in some other world beyond, but in the midst of this world. Our obedience is demanded in times of the contradictory appearance. And then, through our obedience, the miracle like lightning is allowed to flash up again and again from the blessed, uh, perfect blessed new world of the final promise. 
God wants us to honor God on earth. God wants us to honor God and our fellow man and woman and nowhere else. God's kingdom sinks down into the cursed ground. Let us open our eyes, become sober, and obey him here. Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom. Let us pray. God, we are those who live in the character of your Son, Christ. We are reconciled through your love for us, reconciled by another's death. And through that reconciliation, we are brought to these practices of flourishing, of love of you and love of neighbor. May we find our stories engrafted into that story, to the story of rescue of Israel, to the stories of deliverance that you have given your people. And may through being drawn to those, we find that the ultimate act of your deliverance comes through the death of your beloved son, who reconciles us and sets us forth to move in practices of love of you, with all our heart, soul, and might, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves, and their particularness, and their nearness, and their location close to us. I ask all this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.